This podcast is brought to you by Thrive Market, the online shopping club for people who care about healthy foods at a great discount price and the convenience of ordering from your home and ship nationally for free. You never have to pay full price for healthy food again. Go to thrivemarket.com forward slash MDA like Mark's Daily Apple and start your free two-month trial and get 15% off your first order. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder, Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Damage Control, Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, anti-aging supplement. Available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, Brad Kearns. Hey listeners, Brad Kearns here in this incredible L. Russ recording studio slash secret mountain getaway retreat home. That's right. Um, one of our favorite podcast hostesses on the primal blueprint podcast we've heard her on this channel too and we're gonna like kind of turn the tables here and you're gonna interview me the usual primal endurance podcast host that's right and we're gonna have some fun hey everyone um you know actually one of the reasons i want to interview brad not just because of uh his book coming out with mark sisson primal endurance but also because i never really fully heard your true like your full story of even though i work with you and i talk to you all the time i don't know how you even came to understand this stuff. I know you and Mark used to work together, so I think a lot of people, let's just start from the beginning. I mean, how did you initially even desire to do endurance competitions? I know. I wonder that myself, too. I think it was trying to get attention from the chicks in high school. Did it work? And being too small for football. That was, that <laughs> was, was basically the one-two punch. You know, you go out there to football tryouts and see these giant guys and um, Were you then, running away from bullies and that's why you became a runner? Yeah, I, I, I'm standing there watching the football practice and the coach is like, hey, what do you want? And I'm like, uh, uh, I want to know where the cross-country team is. <laughs> down the other hill, down the steps, go see him. Um, so, yeah, I got into running in high school and it was, um, you know, it's a great community. I mean, high school sports, cross-country and track are the best because they're co-ed. They're huge, gigantic. There's no cuts. You can be a slow runner or a fast runner and mingle with um, the boys and girls and have that you know, your competitive aspirations as, as one of the faster people and getting serious about it and training and also just being part of a big social uh, experience where you're building your fitness and you're having that individualization of your competitive goal where you're, you know, you're running against the clock. It doesn't care if you're last place. If you beat your time from the last one, it's a celebration. It's a personal victory. And so... Um, no, why yeah. not the theater department, though? I mean, for the ladies in the social, like, uh, running's a lot oh, of work. Man, were you, you always interested in working out? Always? And that's why you're like, oh, I want to find a sport? Or were you not an athlete and you wanted to be an athlete? Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. Like, growing up San Fernando Valley and um, sports from day one. My family's all sports. My father's the top golfer in the world over the age of 90, still going strong. And So um, you just had to find something in high school that, like, fit yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. All my friends, the same thing. Uh, Richard went out for the gymnastics team. Robert was big enough to play football. And we all found our way. John was on the tennis team. These are the guys I'm calling out because we're still super athletic and competitive here, over 50 now. Um, but it's, you know, everyone's trying to find their way in high school. That's what you want, you know, for your kids and try to find a passion and all that. And for me, 
um, it was running and joining up with like uh, Steve Coburn, Steve Deitch, and the guys that I trained with every single day. And we really went for it. And I started out as kind of a goofball and I would hide in the bathrooms uh, while the team went out and did their workout because I just wasn't locked in right away. And it, it's a very hard, Well, why were you sport. hiding out? You were... Um, you know, I, I just kind of, you know, you got to have that passion for distance running if you want to be really good and, and, and take it far. You got to have that fire burning inside because it's such a difficult and grueling sport. It's not like being one of the guys on the golf or the tennis team who mails it in halfway and they're just kind of middling. You know, you gotta you gotta want to hurt and you gotta want to be focused to to go anywhere in such a difficult sport. And at the start, I kind of um, I didn't I didn't find it yet, so I was kind of the guy who didn't train that much. I still was pretty competent in the races. I could still do pretty well because I had natural ability and I had an athletic background. But then after a while, um, you know, you start getting further and further sucked into it. And I had great role models in um, Deitch and Cobrain, and they trained really hard and just set this pace. Um, Cobrain's father, Ron Cobrain, who's featured prominently in the book too, he was, a, he was a, an adult, a parent, and he was an uh, extremely dedicated runner throughout our high school career. He'd run at 5.30 in the morning every day in the, in the middle of San Fernando Valley. And we'd wake up early before school and go out there and mix with these adults that were you know, had this passion, this natural passion for running. So I had great influences and role models. And halfway through high school, I went from goofball hiding in the bathroom to, um, you know, racing at a national level. And when I was 16, I was ranked 12th in the nation in the 1500, the mile uh, for my age group. I went to National Junior Olympics in Nebraska. I got to spend a wow. week in Nebraska. And so I was progressing on those steps of, um, you know, trying to make a go of it and then dreaming of, uh, college uh, running aspirations as well. Went to UCSB for that purpose and um, it didn't work out at all for me there because I got my, my butt handed to me and they just ran you into the ground really on a very rudimentary training protocol where they just throw everybody out there and see see who can survive. It's the like a Navy SEAL uh, exactly. kind of Yeah, and operation. speaking of that, like the numbers, you know, you got 100 guys trying out for the SEALs. They only need 14. You know that by the end. That's all they're going on the mission to Afghanistan. The rest of them, they could care less. So if some guy freezes in the ocean and needs to swim in and drop out, they don't really care. And college running, we had 21 guys on the cross-country team at UCSB. And if you're familiar with cross-country, five of them score points in the meet. And on an away meet, only seven people go. So the coach happened to announce that the first day, like, well, seven so of you There's a lot guys, of benching? You're, like, benched a lot? Are you just you sitting train, around? Is that and you can run in the home meet, right? So you still get to be on the team. But, like, the coolest thing ever is to get the uniform get on that bus and go to a road trip and then come back and, you know, join the party at the dorm after going to a, a Division One athletic competition at another school and you feel like you're a, a prominent athlete. Um, but the competitiveness in training was such that it was very difficult to survive as a young guy. I mean, I was 17 years old. I'm running with 22, 23-year-old guys that were shaving and <laughs> were grown men and they just beat the crap out of me in training. And... Um, you know, now looking back, everything's a positive experience. You can take something from it. And I, I started to formulate my, you know, strong opinions that I convey today um, about the individuality and the intuition part of training rather than, you know, applying a formula to something as dynamic and, and sensitive as getting fitter as an athlete. So I had to learn the hard way through college of just getting sick and injured season after season. And that's what led me to the sport of triathlon because I was injured and I couldn't run. So I started cycling. They had a great cycling team at UCSB. So I got into that sport. But triathlon really quickly. still involved running. 
and running at the end. But you're saying just a minimal compared to what you were doing before. Exactly. So you're like, I can just cut down the running and I'll add these other two sports yeah. in and then I can still yeah, compete. Yeah. I mean, if you wake up and you're on a, a, a collegiate running team and your leg hurts, you go out there and suck it up just like a football player. I mean, sure. you just hope that it's not going to fall apart. And I did. I got stress fractures, shin splints, pneumonia, um, you name it, uh, chronomalacia, the knee injury, and I, I was, you know, inhibited. However, you can sit on your bike and pedal with a stress fracture, and that was the last straw for me. Was I was diagnosed with a stress fracture. It's a pretty serious overuse injury. You can't run for at least a couple months. The season was over, and the next day when I left the doctor's office, I got on a bike. It was my six foot three brother. I'm five eleven. So I had this crazy bike, and I pedaled it from my dorm in Santa Barbara to my home in Los Angeles, 103 miles oh in God. seven hours. And when I finished that ride, you know, I was elated because I'd found a direction, a passion that was different than this dead-end road, this devastating uh, road of being an uh, injured college athlete, broken-down athlete. So now I was like, I'm going to pedal until my legs fall off and until my leg feels better, and then I can run, and the run is going to be there. Um, you know, when you when you heal your injury and then you can run half as much as you did before, um, you're unlikely to get injured. And also the cross-training effect, which is so, so positive, is you're building more resilient musculoskeletal system. You have better uh, uh, vastus medialis development in your legs so you don't get that knee injury from, from weak quads because they're underused during training. So, you know, that's why triathlon is so popular. A lot of people come to triathlon from being injured runner. Well, so, I mean, it's funny because it will end up there. Injured runner to injured triathlete, <laughs> right? I mean, it's kind of like overtraining to overtraining, and then you guys figured it out, right? You figured out the new paradigm. When did you meet Mark Sisson? Um, so I, I finished college, and um, I was pretty into triathlons at that point when I graduated. Um, I went to work for, I, I, I should say, a great tragedy occurred in my life at that time, which was uh, getting hired at the accounting firm to go from this wonderful <laughs> experience. That, that was a tragedy. <laughs> going from hanging out at UCSB campus, shorts and t-shirt, thongs, riding your bike around, going to the beach, going to class sometimes. You yeah. mean flip-flops, right? When you say thongs, you're yeah, not talking about, okay, I just right. want to clarify. Uh, maybe there's some people out there in thongs <laughs> these thongs. days, but not back then. Um, but, you know, it was a great life. And then all of a sudden, I'm thrust into the working world, driving an hour commute each way in Los Angeles traffic to my high-rise downtown with a suit and tie every day. And I was miserable because that was not the so vision not for you. me. Yeah, no offense to the accountants out there who have built a nice career and oh, love God it. God bless them. And I, you know, I recommend that as a major for you youngsters if you're listening. Nothing against it, but when you realize, you know, when you're in touch with your passions and your dreams and you feel something's incongruent, I'm also strongly in favor of taking action saying, Absolutely. this does not feel right for me to be stuck in this building downtown when I had so much fun and personal growth and development from being an athlete and a triathlete. So my career there lasted 11 weeks, and then I announced my retirement from the firm, and my, my, uh, my destiny was to become a professional triathlete, which in those days, this is 1986, there wasn't much of a profession. There was almost no possible way to really make, make an money. income and make it work. And so it was a completely um, you know, unrealistic dream, but... I felt like I had a chance to compete with the best guys. I'd raced them in college and compared my splits, and I could run with the top, top guys. I was way far behind in swimming and biking, but I had this dream, like if I kept biking and trying really hard, maybe I could catch up to these guys. Um, and that dream eventually came true, right? I mean, you finished. It came true. Yeah. Interestingly, um, it came true really quickly, which was a bit of a strange 
entry into the world of professional Tell sports. Tell us about that. That's yeah, pretty yeah. awesome. So, if you're jumping in and you got success yeah, right I'm out of the, the gate, that's uh, exciting. I'm at the accounting firm in March. I'm, I'm busting my butt, you know, doing the audits. And then I, then I quit one day and I started pedaling. And the thing that I like to remember about this time was uh, I was just free and intuitive. I didn't have coaches. I didn't have experts. There were no books. There were no ways to learn, really. You just had to learn on your own what your body would give you each day, and you would take that and nothing more. So sometimes I'd wake up, I'd be tired, I'd sleep and rest that day. And then the next day I'd feel great, and I'd ride my bike all day long. I'd go on the mountains right where we are in here now, in the Mulholland and uh, Santa Monica Mountains, and I'd ride and ride and ride, and I didn't have any limitations like, oh, I only better go three hours today because I'm not that fit. I would just see what my body could take and was uh, extremely well aligned with my intuition and my health and, and uh, fitness and balance and all those great things that here we are reflecting on years and years later that are so hard for the average triathlete or highly motivated athlete to capture. But I was locked into this blissful state where all I wanted to do was stay out of the accounting office and be outdoors pushing my body every day. Um, I met Andrew McNaughton early in his career. We were both rookie professionals and we you know, had that shared passion for we wanted to climb that ladder and we wanted to challenge these guys at the top, and we were pretty much fearless and naive and stupid enough to think that we could do it. So in my first year on the circuit, I got, a, I got some money together and flew to Portland, or I'd do the local races in Los Angeles and go to another race out of state in Arizona somewhere, and I'd get 13th and 23rd and 12th and 17th and 9th, and if it was a really small race, I could get 3rd or something. And I'd look and I'd see I had this hope because I was improving. And I was getting closer, but I was still embarrassingly far behind being, you know, one of the leading guys or ever getting a check for my efforts or any of that stuff. Um, but I went to this race at the very end of the season in Palm Springs, and it was um, a world championship series for duathlon, just running and biking because it was in the winter. Um, and the top guys in the world were there. And it's in the desert. So in the water. desert, right. No, <laughs> not much water to swim in. Um, but so it was a big, exciting race on the triathlon circuit. It was a new event, and they invited the top guys in the world to come. And in the very first event, I beat everybody by a pretty good margin, oh including gosh. the best guys who had bombed out and just had bad races. And here comes this guy nobody knows with no shirt on. You'll see that picture in the book, um, you know, indicating that I had no sponsors and I was a total <laughs> nobody. That's awesome. Um, but when I crossed the finish line, you know, things changed for me and I realized, hey, wait a second, you know, maybe I could do this. Um, and then six weeks later, there was a rematch, the same event, same course same top guys trying to re regain their status as number one and, and and put this you know guy in his place is that a is that a common occurrence i've never heard of these rematches i mean they don't redo it's a series of races later. it was a, it was a three race series oh, okay got yeah, it, got yeah. It, got so this is the so second like two race out of three like yeah 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 right so um the second race uh the same thing happened except for even i was even further ahead i was five minutes ahead of second place which is a you know a mile um so i won by a mile and so you know at that point um I, I should also admit, you know, the the extreme journey that I'd been on from nobody in the accounting firm to beating the top guys in the world, being featured on the magazine covers, and everyone knew who I was all of a sudden. It was a great story awesome. because there's never been an upset like that. Even to this day, there's no one, now the sport's way more sophisticated. No rookie is ever going to beat the number one guy in the world by a large margin no, out of nowhere. No, it's like cool times yeah. that you were doing it at because, like, again, it's just so saturated now right where that something like that can't happen that's yeah. so cool uh so at that point however um that's when i started to feel the weight and the significance of what i'd done and i started to feel the pressure and i started to feel like 
gee, I better get more serious and more intense and more disciplined with my workouts because I've been such a goofball and I've been training by feel and resting when I was tired. So I started to change my approach and get away from that, that balance point, that center of power that I had that enabled me to succeed so quickly. And now I was, you know, pushing myself too hard, getting into overtraining pattern, getting into my head about uh, how nervous and uh, how important it is now what I'm doing because people are paying attention to me finally instead of being a completely anonymous goofball. Um, so that was another important lesson point that I had to learn in my career was to regain. And then I, you know, I did okay and I got on the circuit and I was, you know, at a high fitness level. Um, and so I was able to mix it up and, and build my career, which lasted for nine years, which was, um, you know, longer than I thought. I thought it was going to be one year. However, the struggles of having that, um, you know, overly structured, regimented approach um, was the second lesson. So the first lesson I learned was, wow, I can become, uh, reach my dreams if I just, you know, stay intuitive and stay true to myself. And then if I get too full of myself and too full of the, um, the outside influences that are impure and influence you to make bad decisions and all those things, you can struggle and suffer and get your butt kicked. So um, quickly, early in my career, I was exposed to all these different um, experiences and influences that molded my, uh, my vision and my approach to, to let me go and uh, continue to build my career over the future. Out of the nine years that you were, you know, full force competitive uh, at your career, what, at what point along the way did you meet Mark and how did you meet Mark? Yeah, so Mark came along and um, well, everyone knew him because he was, uh, you know, he was fourth place in the Ironman in 82. He was, so everyone in the circle of triathletes yeah, kind of like knew of him. Yeah, he predated, um, you know, my, my career by a fair amount. He was done by the time I was mixing it up in there. Um, and, you know, he had that background in, in endurance sports that everyone was aware of. And he was an author and he'd written one of the best-selling books of the time in um, multi-sport called Training for Biathlons. It's an underground little tiny handbook. But his notions and his uh, training theories in there were groundbreaking. So... To me, it was really nice uh, to encounter him in 1988, midway through my career, or I guess early in my career, and he was coaching a professional team that I'd signed up for in Los Angeles. So we had this resource as part of the Pioneer Triathlon team. Like a triathlon team for training? Yeah. Just you're, you're yeah, all going to train together? Yeah, a group of guys together, train together, together, and here we have a coach, we have a massage therapist, Howard Nusenoff, we could go see massage, and it was a guy, Scott Zagarino, who wanted to get everything right for the athlete. And dream of the support, get the support that they need. I can't imagine Mark giving you a full body massage, but uh, he was that was a different guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what Mark did for me at that time was really uh, empower me to pull out of that destructive pattern that is so common. Like I mentioned early in my career, of pushing too hard, being impatient, uh, being unrealistic, comparing yourself to others, and training accordingly because it's such a competitive macho sport. I mean, you're sitting here on a bike pedaling up a hill with six other guys and it's so difficult and, and, and challenging. What are you going to do? You're, you're trying to get to the top faster than the next guy so you can feed your ego and continue to build this intensity and this competitiveness that we feel like we need to, to step, step foot on the starting line. Um, so I was, you know, I was struggling more than I should have for my talent level at that time. And I was just a guy on the circuit picking up some checks and glad to make money and make a living at it. But there was so much more potential there. And so in Primal Endurance, we detail this to to great extent over the years, how my training evolved with Mark's guidance, where he would uh, encourage me to break free of this nonsense like, 
you have to put in consistent level of weekly mileage every week to be good. And, you know, his main, um, one of his main points was that you should, uh, in my case, uh, you know, I was a fragile athlete. Like I mentioned in college, I was injured and sick all the time. And same with triathlon. I couldn't train at the level that these other guys could. And so he suggested one day, look, you're trying to race these guys on the race course. Why don't you compare yourself to their best workout of the week and match their best workout of the week on that day? And the rest of the week, don't worry about it because you need more rest because you're a different guy and you're more fragile. So go home and, and sleep in and forget the, you know, the, the obsession with mileage and doing work every single day because you want to justify your existence as a professional athlete. So what happened was I made my hard workouts harder and I made my easy workouts much easier and took more rest and more sleep and more body care and all those things that you need. But on the days when it was time to hit it hard, I mean, we would go to the track at Pepperdine or we'd ride through these hills and go all day long. We'd ride to Santa Barbara and back now and then. Just oh, that's crazy. Like that, that would be my you know. bicycle trip nightmare. That's a huge, yeah, no, <laughs> that's I mean, amazing. You know, hundred. Everyone thinks 100 miles is a long ride. That's like the benchmark. And we would go 140, 180, you know, just crazy things where we'd push beyond our limits in order to achieve a fitness breakthrough, uh, but then rest more as a consequence. So starting working with Mark in 88, and in 1990, um, I had uh, nine victories and started to break through from being a, a sixth, seventh, eighth ranked guy to you know one of the guys that was challenging for, for the win at the biggest races. And in 91, I had my best year. I won uh, nine times. I was ranked third in the world. I was national champion, national series champion. That's amazing. Pan Am champion, although, you know, all the culmination that I dreamed of for a long time. Um, and so it was a testament to, well, you know, maybe it just worked for me, but we believe, and that's why we're putting this book out, is those principles of being intuitive rather than regimented and robotic, uh, being individualized rather than comparing to some standard or some crap you read in a magazine, is that this is what you should be doing if you want to run a marathon or do a triathlon of this length. Um, that's all nonsense, and it's more important to be protecting your health and your positive spirit and your attitude and all those intangible things that can be easily overlooked. A um, couple things on that. I heard a great quote once uh, said, when you follow the herd, you step in shit, <laughs> right? So, you know, if you're following the herd on all the training and you're, and then you're just, like you said, this robotic, uh, this robotic uh, athlete. The other thing, let's talk about competition for a second, because one of the things I've learned is I try to tell people, you know, when you compete against someone else, you lose. When you compete to be the best in yourself and just be a winner, yeah, you win. A, I win a lot that way. I've been a winner a lot in life because of that. I'm never worried about what Jane or, you know, Joe is doing. It's more about, like, not like I'm going to beat them. It's more I'm just going to come in first. I'm just going to win. It's not anti-them. Someone mm -hmm. has to lose in order for me to win. It's mm -hmm. just me being the best. Do you know what I'm saying? There's a difference there when mm -hmm. you're trying to, when you're, there's a level of frustration when you're trying to compete against somebody. And I feel like when you're competing against you, you kind of lose. I mean, so how did you deal with also the ego involved? I mean, obviously, we know you changed your routine to kind of chill out and be more intuitive and Mark help you with that. But then what about all this ego stuff that comes in about, you know, other guys and other, you know, how did you how did you kind of lessen that threat? Yeah, that's an excellent uh, point to make. And our culture is so distorted in favor of the obsession with winning right? that we're socialized from little kids age, little kids playing sports. And did you win or lose? You know, um, and it's very difficult to put it in proper perspective. 
And even some somebody talking on a podcast, my words or your words could be misinterpreted and someone might think sure. you're an airy-fairy uh, wacko that's never been <laughs> under quarterly sales pressure as a salesperson like like the listener. However, um, there's some nuances here that we, you know, we, we talk over this stuff a lot. Um, you and I and Mark and I and uh, people that we respect like uh, Gabby and Laird on their podcast and, you know, super high achieving people. But with that process-oriented mindset where they're focused on being the best they can be, releasing their attachment to the outcome. So you're not defining your self-esteem by the success or failure of your most recent endeavor. Or which other is a big people's challenge, endeavors, right? right? Or yeah. what place you rank on the list. Um, you know, that's, if you can break free from that and just be the best that you can be, which is, does not preclude you from being intensely competitive and wanting to win. Um, but I think Roger Bannister, the first guy who ran the sub four minute mile, he had a great quote among many great quotes. He was profound. I mean, his old books from 1954, you can read these nuggets in here that just resonate. There's a couple in the, in the primal endurance book, but one of the things he said was, um, when you're competing, uh, nothing else in the world matters. And it's the most important thing possible. And then as soon as it's over, you have to put it in a place, you have to file it away in a place that's not very important. And I think about that now when, you know, I spent nine years of my life living and breathing triathlon, eat, sleep, train, uh, you know, it was, it was all consuming with all my heart and soul and, you know, shedding tears on the race course of joy and sadness and frustration and all those things. (laughs) And now... If you come to my office in Auburn, California, I have a big file cabinet, and on the third drawer down on the back right is a big brown folder, and it's my race result, or you can look on bradkerns.com, and there's a link there that says Brad's result from every single race, and it's whatever, 100, 130 races I did, and it's, you know, it's a completely insignificant part so of my life. that's where you filed it away. <laughs> you filed it away, and it's like, now looking back, it's like, I don't even remember that guy that I'm talking about in this story. I remember a little bit of Palm Springs, and that was cool, but... You know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't inform my day-to-day. It doesn't change my day-to-day life today. But what you're, what you're going to take from that is not the placement and the result or the, or the money that was won uh, or any of that nonsense, but the, you know, the path to personal growth and the enjoyment of the experience and the process and the connections. And maybe you were able to motivate and inspire someone else. And I think even someone who's as hardcore as a business leader like Sisson or... You know, the guys who founded Google and their billions of dollars, but, you know, their original mission was they wanted to make a good search engine to help people in the world gain access to information. And if you're familiar with the Google story, just a good aside, um, they turned down a lot of opportunities to go public and at the risk of making zero dollars or being instant millionaires forever. But their their vision stayed true and they went public very, very late in the game. I think it was 2004. Mm -hmm. And the dot-com was 99, 2000. That's when everybody went public, got their millions, and then crashed and burned. And they were like, no thanks, we're too busy working and building this thing, and our vision is more longer term. And there was no guarantee that that company would ever make any money and go public. And some of their best competitors, AltaVista was a search engine back then, mm-hmm. made nothing. It fell apart. And so, oh, aren't these guys uh, you know, great with their $20 billion and, and this and that? But it was the outcome was you know, not what they were fixated on. And so I love that when you're looking at these high stakes performers, peak performers that are um, absolutely focused on just doing the best they can and having that passion to do it, like an artist or whatever, 
Um, who was it like Van Gogh, Picasso? These guys made no money during their lives, and now their paintings are selling for a hundred million dollars. It's kind of freaky. I wish they would have made some more money. Yeah, if you're dead, the more money you make. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but for for any listener out there who's an athletic or has any other goals, even in the career in the workplace, you know, I find looking back at my successes and failures, um, these stupid entrepreneurial ideas in high school and college, where I was trying to make a quick buck doing Valentine's delivery service around campus. You know, it was a stupid <laughs> idea. I didn't care. That's awesome. And it failed. You weren't passionate you know, about it. And I yeah. can list 10 more failures that I really had no passion for and really wasn't aligning to the goal of making a world a better place. And then on the other side, it's like, you do something like you're writing your book, Paleothyroid Solution, and the reason you're doing it is, hey, would you like to make money? Uh, sure you would. But you're doing it to share your story and help other people avoid that suffering. Yeah, because if you would ask me years ago, I would say, no, no way would I ever write such a book or a book on health, you know. But the thing <laughs> yeah. is that it became such a passion, and then paleo became such a passion. And then when I really found that it was the answer to so many underlying causes of the problem, it's just a passion. And, and like, if you follow your bliss, I know it's such a cliche thing, right? Um, it was a throw who said it, you know. But when you follow your bliss and you follow your passion... It really does work out. And then all these other ideas you had that you think are great business ideas, but you're not passionate about, but you know you, quote, like, can do, they never work out because there's not that level of passion there. Hi, listeners. It's Brad Kearns to talk to you more about Thrive Market. And boy, this is a favorite subject of mine, shopping online, because it's so convenient. You can navigate to the exact products you want so easily, quickly. You make better purchasing decisions. And with Thrive Market, they do a lot of the homework for you because they put up only the healthiest, highest quality food products you can find at fantastic discount prices. It's really like Costco meets Whole Foods online. And this is a shopping club, so you pay a moderate annual membership and get all the kinds of foods and groceries you want for 50% off retail prices and always ship for free anywhere in the country. And they have great filters, so you can put things like paleo, gluten-free, vegan, raw, non-GMO, organic, fair trade, into the search engine and find the exact products that you desire. They even have the best non-toxic household products, beauty, pet, and baby products in the market. So you're sitting down, you're going shopping, you're having fun, and then you open up this wonderful box of only the very highest quality food products and household products you can find. What's cool about Thrive is they have a nice mission. They have a charitable cause. So for every paid annual membership, they donate a free membership to a low-income family, teacher, or military family. Now... If you want to join the movement, go to thrivemarket.com and check it out. Scroll around. I know you'll be excited when you first land there and see all the cool products that you're familiar with at those super high prices sometimes at quality, healthy markets. But when you go to thrivemarket.com, the prices are slashed. And for listening to the podcast, you get a special deal of a two-month free trial. So you don't have to pay that annual membership until you're convinced that you're going to be a Thrive customer and you get 15% off your first order. Two-month free trial, 15 off your first order. All you have to do is go to thrivemarket.com forward slash M-D-A, like Mark's Daily Apple. Go check out thrivemarket.com. You will love it. Almond butter, super cool trail mixes, primal kitchen mayo, dark chocolate, and more. I want to get back to Bannister for a second. And then I want to lead into Primal Endurance because I think there's something really important about that whole four-minute mile, which has probably been discussed a million times in other books. Up until uh, Before he actually accomplished that, no one thought it was possible, right? Yeah, the medical right. experts Then the, of the minute time, he yeah. accomplished it, everybody yeah. else started to beat it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Think about that, that mind, you know, blow yeah. right there yeah. and that how everybody just needed to realize it was possible in order to do it. 
So I was kind of thinking like leading into primal endurance, the same, the same paradigm, like this old way of like, you've got to train this way. You've got to use this book. You know, everyone I know who's ever even thought about a marathon goes and picks up a book, right? And then they're trying to follow this regimented robotic routine. And people back then did not think that you could do what you can do now with the kind of training you guys are suggesting, right? This whole shift in paradigm. Mm-hmm. And even the guy I interviewed the other day wrote the book on Ultramental, where it's like he trains, I don't know, one hour a week mm-hmm. or something. You know, he's doing minimal training. People would say, well, that's crazy. That can't be done. You can't be more successful in an adventure race or in a triathlon by training less than mm-hmm. what is required. Right. But until someone finally does it right until there's that fat adapted athlete who finally does it and breaks and shatters the four minute mile pair. You know where I'm going with this? Oh, See sure. what I'm yeah, so yeah. I just want to lead into then this new paradigm you guys are talking about, because this is a whole different level of training, you know, and let's start off with the fact that we're seeing a lot of athletes becoming pre-diabetic. Right. And insulin resistant athletes training a lot of athletes that's right yeah adventure races endurance runners triathletes um it's a big problem so i want to talk then i mean we know mark's story and how you know he was all broken down and messed up and was like oh what's wrong with me i'm the decrepit 20 year old Mm -hmm. (laughs) or whatever it was Mm -hmm. how did you did you were you close with Mark when he figured all of this out? And so then you kind of were the friend nearby that kind of said, hey, I see what Mark's doing. I'm going to try that. How did, you know, how did you get involved in this new paradigm, right? Get Becoming fat adapted, the paleo life and oh, ditching everything you've ever learned because everything you've ever learned is said, you know, eat five bowls of pasta before you go. <laughs> right? Yeah, so that's funny. You're t- p- p- pulling the timeline together now because, um, you know, I finished triathlons way back in 1995. That's 20 years ago. Oh my God. Uh, You're dating yourself. Wow. Some of those records still hold, I think, out on the race course. I better look them up. That's a long time. Yeah. Uh, and of course, Mark was out of the game, um, you know, around the same time frame. He was involved in the anti doping movement of triathlon. So he had his finger in the game a little bit and he was still coaching and advising some of the leading athletes, but building his other business and, and doing all the other stuff. Um, so a lot of time has transpired since we were active athletes burning those carbs and eating the carbs and training is still according to the, you know, it was, it was an innovative training like I described earlier. Right, but it might have still been more intuitive, but it was still, right. So yeah, your intuitive still carb training paradigm. with Mark initially was still the carb paradigm. Yeah, and we're yeah. still doing crazy extreme endurance goals. So you want to talk about a guy racing on the triathlon circuit trying to be healthy. That's an absolutely incongruent statement. And I was doing the best I could to take care of my body. I didn't get injured. I got tired a lot. I never got any injuries. I was fine. If I had a sore shoulder, I wouldn't swim for three days. I'd bike and run. And so I was, you know, relatively okay. Um, I was lean and mean. I could go for an hour, 46 minutes for an Olympic distance triathlon of swim a mile, bike 25, run six, which is great. Uh, But I was a broken down piece of crap in terms of total fitness quotient score. So if I had to lift up some sandbags because it was raining and we had to protect our driveway, you know, I'd be sore the next day. Or if I had to do anything besides a straightforward swim or bike or run, I was a sad sack of bones. And I was 30 years old and I felt like I was 80 in many ways because of the, um, you know, the the constant battle with overuse and fatigue, right? So luckily, you know, spun out of that in time before I did any further damage. I raced on the professional circuit from age 20 to age 30. And by the time I was 30, I was chewed up and spit out and I was over it because I was a little bit slower than I was at my peak. And that's all you need in a small sport 
to get your, you know, your butt sent home. And Mark's story the same. He was broken down and beat up before his time. But that's okay because it was a very extreme pursuit and then it was on to other things. Like in my case, you know, starting a family, having to go get a job again, actually sit in the office and stay there instead of I was able to escape for that 10-year time period. Uh, but then we came, you know, we always kept in touch and Mark was doing the Mark's Daily Apple thing uh, 2006. Um, but I think a, a big turning point in my life uh, re in relating to him was when he wrote that article, A Case Against Cardio. And you can go to marksdailyapple.com and type in, in the search bar upper right, A Case Against Cardio. And it was a landmark post, one of the most read posts ever on the site. It's over a million uh, individual reads by this point, you know, nine years later. And one of later. the main pillars of what we all of talk primal about. philosophy. Is, yeah, yeah. Not, not doing chronic cardio. Um, but for me, it was like, here's this guy who was my coach, my buddy. my I'm Telling you, know, you to do chronic cardio. <laughs> him, but more or less, you know, doing, it right, doing as best you can. But he was basically calling out the entire endurance movement as being unhealthy, being unbalanced, being a cardiac risk factor, which we now know with great certainty, but it was a novel idea back then. If you go on a, a, a go to YouTube and type in um, TED Talk, Dr. James O'Keefe, he has a wonderful presentation and it's titled Run for Your Life, but not too far and at a slow pace. <laughs> and his point is, if you do more than just jog for a couple miles, a couple times a week, like the threshold is so incredibly low, it's running 10 minute miles for one and a half to two hours a week, that's the sweet spot to promote longevity and preserve health. Anything beyond an hour and a half to two hours of cardio a week is putting yourself into cardiac disease risk factor zone rather than protection, which is mind-blowing to think, you know. Because like Mark has even spoken about on his transformational seminar, the whole concept of thinking that there's this, the, the more miles you do, the more you put in, the healthier your heart is, right? I mean, that is, again, that old paradigm. Everyone thought the more miles you clock, the more you run. I mean, that was Mark as a 14-year-old teenager thinking, hey, the more mileage, the better the mileage my heart's going to get. He, he said, and now we yeah. know the more mileage is the less mileage on your heart. And also, I want to just point out, too, I mean, aside from your overtraining that you guys were doing, you're also eating a pro-inflammatory diet, right? If you're still including grains and all of that stuff, nutrient it's just deficient, pro-inflammatory, yeah. highly oxidative with, you know, all the snacks and the crackers and cakes and treats that you're consuming as an endurance athlete. So it's a it's a triple whammy for bad health in that sense. Yeah, that, um, that's like a widowmaker versus people are like, oh, don't eat that, you know, burger with bacon. It's a widowmaker. It's like, no, I think running 30 miles. <laughs> How about cycling on the open roads, which is another as an aside um, you know, I have a really uh, different perspective now looking back that I've uh, racked my bike and I'm, I'm not out there training and I rode, you know, I training, tracked in training logs for all the years I rode. I rode over 100,000 miles, so that's like a good old car. You're uh, a Volvo. I pedaled. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, and I feel very lucky to be out of it alive. And so I want to, you know, yeah. put a shout out to anyone who's strapping up and getting on that bike with those 18, 19 millimeter tires and riding on the open road is that you're putting your life in your hands every single time. So if you can drive 12 minutes out of town and pull off and start your rides and end your rides at, the, at a safer spot every time, if you can think about doing um, more indoor riding and less outdoor riding or going for mountain bike workouts, which translate extremely well to racing when you're racing on a, on a safe road, but it's tough and it's especially tough to see guys out there um, not respecting the laws of the road and thinking that they're, uh, you know, 
invisible or, or invulnerable to you know the, the hazards that come because everyone who's in the cycling community triathlon community uh, has been touched by the tragedy of cyclists getting uh, you know taken out by cars so I've hit a couple myself on Pacific Coast Highway so <laughs> it ain't fun it ain't fun to be on the other side of it even if it's the car's fault guess who loses in that encounter yeah that's right so um, you know reflecting for me uh, this is 10 years now retired out of my career but I'm still jogging like i feel like i'm in shape i'm you know i'm 40 i'm, I'm not fat I'm, I'm i'm still keeping my trim no way weight. you're totally trim well i'm talking sure. about like this is 10 years ago now all oh, right so i'm 10 years retired from triathlon circuit and i feel like my fitness contribution is i'm out there pedaling my bike on the weekend a couple hours and i'm running an hour you know f a few mornings a week and feeling like i'm still in shape but what i'm doing is i'm starting to feel worse and worse i feel kind of crappy after an hour run instead of refreshed and I'm heading down this this spiral where I'm not really fit, and I'm actually succumbing to the aging process. Now, were grains a part of your diet still after all the um, massive training? Yeah, more or less. Yeah, stuff? I was eating whole grains, you know, and brown rice and pasta, and I wasn't eating mass quantities of food anymore, like um, the coneheads. But I was not, you know, optimal diet by primal standards because I had all these carbs. I sold carbs on my website. I sold energy bars, and I'd snack on them <laughs> in my office oh, all day long, and I was able to. You know, I'm a high-calorie burner energy person, so it wasn't manifesting in blowing up like a balloon, but things were not looking great uh, by perspective that we have now, and so that's when I started to open my eyes to the fact that, hey, maybe I'm not such a, 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 a model of fitness because I can only do 12 pull-ups, and in fact, I count that as a good strength training session, one set of 12 pull-ups, you know, and I remember throwing my back out. I couldn't walk for a week, just out of nowhere, just reach, bending down on the counter to eat some eggs, and I was down <laughs> on the ground. And I was in bed for a couple days, and I couldn't walk right for seven or eight or nine days. And I was like, what the hell is that? And why should that happen to me? Um, yeah. I, I tore my meniscus with no known attribution when I was 39 years old, which is common if you Google it, which I did. It says, males around age 40 often tear their meniscus with no known attribution. I was walking down the street with my dog, and all of a sudden my knee swells up like a grapefruit. Oh, man. So this is starting to get you to second guess, like, what's going on with my body? I'm getting old, and I'm only 40. And I'm, I'm still thinking of myself and my brain as this legendary former, the older I get, the faster I was, as the saying goes. But I'm thinking of myself in that past perspective of like, yeah, I used to race a bit in my day, so that makes me still fit and healthy today, right? And the answer was, no. I had to turn the corner. So that article and talking to Mark afterwards, I decided like on the spot, almost cold turkey, okay, I'm quitting endurance training. And I'm going to start sprinting. And I'm going to start slowing down my jogging pace so it's actually Within the comfortable zone, cardio yeah. rather than chronic cardio or, or even tiptoeing anywhere near that line. Um, then a couple years later we started to work on the Primal Blueprint project where you know I was I was helping him um, write and edit the books and, and become a publishing company and spread the word for Primal Paleo Living for the last seven or eight years. So For people who are listening and just tuning in I mean most people might really understand uh, what paleo is not just a food list but that it's really changing your body to become fat adapted and, and fuel itself on fat versus glucose tell us about your transition to it like what was the day because i know it's a positive <laughs> day because it's happened yeah. for me and it is for everyone that gets fat adapted which yeah. is like the mind blower of like oh my god this is a different life yeah like what what were those things yeah. you discovered when you were you know adopting the primal blueprint principles and you know for the first time um well, it was uh, June 10th, 2008. It was the day they <laughs> put my wonderful dog, my Springer Spaniel and training partner down up home. And I was in L.A. 
the meeting with Mark. Chronic cardio or? The dog the had neck. a great 14-year <laughs> life and ran. That dog ran like 11,000 miles. I had it tracked in my training log, too, because she ran with me. He ran with you me every single... Dog, oh, no, no. That dog <laughs> no. lived a long, healthy life. I mean, you got a dog, people. Get that dog out and take it to the park and let it run and take it on your runs because dogs living in a house, that's, not, that's an animal. It deserves to be exercised and free. Yeah. So, anyway, passionate dog owner. So, I remember the day... <laughs> But uh, Mark was like, hey, I, I need some help. You know, I need editing and research help, and I'm working on this book, and this is the concept. Um, and so he explained the primal blueprint, the 10 laws. I was arguing for 11, like, what about this? No, 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 come on, man. <laughs> Shut like, the hell up and take notes, dude. Yeah. Um, but it was no grains. And so that was the big walk away for me. It was like, so no what? grains? Like so <laughs> is oatmeal a grain? He's like, hell yeah. I'm like, what about... Um, so like rice, granola rice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i walked out of the house and i just went cold turkey so that was my kind of you know um that might not be for everybody but i said okay i'll try it um and that was you know seven years ago now um but then what happened like how long did it take you to really feel the full effects right i mean we know it takes 21 days to really make a transition but sometimes a little longer for it to really sink in and have all of those sort of sugar burning lingering symptoms gone so <laughs> when you first made the transition and you had like quit grains and you're trying to follow this thing mark's writing about what were what were those revelations that came to you health-wise like are there feeling i mean you know the first time you went five seven hours without eating that must have been a mind blower right when you get fat adapted and you um yeah interesting moments, that you, you know? brought that up and i'll i'll make that point separately from the first question which was um you know i wasn't a sick person i wasn't a fat person so I didn't have these awakenings where I could take pictures of my stomach and send it into Mark's Daily Apple. Right. Um, but, you know, it was nice to notice um, the subtle health improvements like the absence of gas bloating, digestive difficulties that were at most meals, the energy level swings, the constant need to snack, um, and all that kind of stuff. And in tandem with, uh, remember, I'm changing my exercise patterns so that I'm sprinting, lifting heavy weights doing strength training for the first time with more commitment and slowing down my endurance running. So I, I felt like I, you know, I aged my body really well from age 20 to 30. I probably, you know, cut 10 years off my life from racing on the tri circuit, just like every single other person. And then I started regaining um, those years back. And now I'm going to live to be 123. I'm dead certain of it. It's as easy as one, two, three. That's my motto. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, well, um, and when you are certain of it, you will be dead, so that makes sense. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, but right now, I feel like I'm, um, you know, progressing toward those goals of delaying aging very nicely, whereas before I was uh, accelerating things with those crazy workouts and all that. Um, so that's the first part of that question was, um, now I'm eating a much more nutritious diet, fewer calories, which we know is correlated with longevity. Um, however, um, being a lifelong carb-dependent extremely high calorie burning athlete um, the transition for me I'd say wasn't wasn't simple just like for many people struggle I think probably it's not simple for anybody because it's such no, a huge change for me too yeah but there was no half-ass approach so I'm I'm a strong advocate of saying look man do you want to be healthy do you want to live a long time do you understand that drinking that soda is is contributing to your demise rather than doing anything at all for your health and so making these distinctions in your brain where you're like, are you committed to health or not? Are you half-assed committed to health, but you also like to party a lot so that you really need this pizza to make your life feel whole? 
And I was, it was a pretty easy sell for me to say, okay, I don't eat grains. And so I was, a, you know, I was off and running. However, uh, my morning ritual for many, many years, oh, probably 25 years straight, was a gigantic bowl of cereal with two different kinds of granola and the healthy flakes and the raisins, strawberries, blueberries, a big hunk of uh, yeah. flavored yogurt, oh, um, soy milk. And I would oh, pound man. that thing you know, every single morning. <laughs> I would pound that thing for years and years because that was my energy. And if I missed breakfast, I mean, especially in my days as an athlete, there was I, I would be collapsed at 1030 in the morning oh, yeah. on the pavement somewhere because I was burning and needing those calories. So I switched from this giant bowl of cereal to a huge giant omelet every single morning with six eggs and avocado and cheese and vegetables and sometimes bacon or sausage in there. Delicious. And it was a it was a monster. And I powered that thing every morning because I needed that to make my transition easier. I still needed a large dose of sure. nutritious energy calories. Luckily, it didn't spike my blood sugar like the other meal. So I didn't need to have uh, a big hunk of uh, dried mango at 10 a.m. after my 8 a.m. breakfast, which was how I was before. Uh, but I feel like if you're struggling with this starting point or you're unsure that you're uh, going to be able to do it, just swap that big giant bowl of cereal and your toast and orange juice and whatever crap you're putting down for the sugar bomb in the morning to an extremely satisfying and large, if necessary, uh, breakfast meal of uh, Primal Approved. And so that got me in the groove. And then like the rest of your question is, um, after, I mean, I wasn't really paying much attention and I enjoyed the omelet so much that it was probably like a couple of years later, I realized waking up that like, yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not super hungry. hungry. Yeah. I'll have an omelet, especially if someone's making it or something, but, um, maybe I'm too busy today or I just don't like, I'm not salivating at the omelet. So the process of fat adaptation I'm sure I was fat adapted uh, before that. And for the listeners that aren't familiar with that term, it's like, can you skip a meal and not pass out? That's an indication that you're becoming better and better at burning stored body fat and making energy internally through um, burning ketones or gluconeogenesis or what have you, rather than being dependent on meals. So Yeah, and if um, you are a sugar burner, the reason to know is if you can't go two to four hours <laughs> without eating... Because you have a lapse in energy or brain function and focus, you are a you are a sugar burner. I mean, and my my first experience was I remember I called Mark, like the next day. So I was like, Mark, this is the weirdest thing. Like, <laughs> I I didn't eat all day. I just accidentally just didn't eat, and then it was like five o'clock at night, and I still was like, I'm not hungry, but I feel like I should eat. I should right as uh, dinner time, or and I went until like eight o'clock that night. I mean, it must have been just because I was right in that four weeks and. Uh -huh. You know, now I I don't go that long unless I'm taking some travel flight, you know, somewhere. But I was perfectly fine the whole time. That was a mind blower for me. I would have never been able to go that long before. <laughs> you know what I mean? Literally, yeah, not yeah. able to. Yeah. So for the people that aren't understanding and they're interested in in switching to the old paradigm, let's let's tell the newbies out there, give them a snapshot of what it what what it is now. What what's the standard of training now? And, and what you guys are proposing? Um, you know, I think the, the biggest mistake that we still see is that chronic... Uh, Overtraining? Chronic cardio, and definition being um, your heart rate is slightly too high uh, to really afford uh, the development of your aerobic system without interruption from the extra stress that occurs when you're um, 
exercising beyond that aerobic maximum heart rate and stimulating a little bit of fight or, fight or flight hormones and stimulating a little bit of anaerobic metabolism. So there's a cutoff point, and Phil Maffetone is the, the master of this and the world's foremost authority on aerobic versus anaerobic and balancing fitness with your health. And he has a formula called 180 minus your age to calculate your training heart rate that represents your aerobic maximum. He has some adjustment factors in his book, and we repurpose it in our book so that people can see the big picture. But if for a rough standard, I'm 50 years old, so 180 minus my age is 130. So any heart rate is your max heart rate. Then, is my is maximum saying, right? aerobic, heart rate. aerobic heart rate, not max heart rate. And people, what's <laughs> no. your max heart rate? It's 220 minus your age, or there's 180 times 0.4. Who cares? You know, it's more like um, this has been time tested by Maffetone. That so this is fine-tuned down now yeah. to be a little bit more specific, is what you're saying. than yeah. this max heart rate thing. This and then a percentage max of max heart rate. This is better than percentage of max heart rate. We used okay. to use percentage of max heart rate. Um, Mark and I have dispensed this in, um, you know, podcast books, public presentations. But now we're kind of landing here where this is a little bit more um, representative of a comfortable and safe heart rate to train at where you're going to get aerobic benefits. Meaning you don't without, go over 130 usually. Correct. Got it. Okay, so you're and not doing a percentage of that 130 like you would with the max heart right. rate. You're just saying it's 180, 180 minus, minus your, your age. age and then that's your max aerobic heart rate. Mm -hmm. Meaning try not to go over that. Yeah, my max heart rate is 190. I just found sure. it on a track workout. Um, um, I did my magnificent uh, athletic feat of running in the 50s for 400 meters in my 50s. So I'm 50 nice. years old. I just ran a 59.6 a couple weeks ago. Congratulations. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's it's a sprint, and it's a different athletic goal than competing in a two- or three- or eight-hour race. And I feel like for that short and doing that once in a while is uh, helping me delay the aging process rather than accelerate it through the chronic stuff. But that's the biggest mistake. If you're exceeding that aerobic heart rate, and you're burning a little bit of sugar or a lot if you're going much over it, like in a spinning class where the people are red-faced and exhausted at the end. Or um, high you're, yoga. You're contributing to a sugar-burning, sugar-dependency lifestyle. When you get out of that workout, I don't care how high your willpower is, you're going to want to hit Jamba Juice and get a medium healthy scone uh, and Because a medium smoothie. Because you just smoothie. depleted your... Your glycogen and your, right. um, your, your stress hormones. And so... You know, the body responds to depletion and exhaustion with a craving for quick energy in the form of sugar. That's genetics and that's survival mechanism. The body does not like to be depleted of glycogen and uh, uh, blood sugar because you'll die if you don't get any food. You'll pass out and, and you'll, you know, you, you won't, you'll get eaten uh, in, in the evolutionary perspective. So the first part of the book is slow, slow down. And um, the chapter title... Slow it down and cut it down, probably, right? Like, cut down the amount of uh, training you know, you're doing? If you, if you slow down, you'll be you'll experience a breakthrough in these long workouts where you're not exhausted and depleted at the end because you're burning fat. And we have enough fat to burn for hours and hours and hours without bonking or without having to rely on our next gel to make it back to our car and not call our cell phone for an Uber ride. I mean, it's just... Um, It's a, it's a nice let's talk about those gels yeah. <laughs> as, as the old paradigm what are we looking at like let's say you're in a triathlon i mean what every 20 minutes every hour you're jamming like 30 carbs give us like a i want a, a rough shot of the carb level you know yeah. of like the old paradigm yeah. um well you know there's this is uh the sports science has been focused on this issue and tim noakes is the the leader of mm -hmm. all time on um exercise endurance exercise physiology he's considered the the, the leader in the world 
he wrote uh, a book. He wrote called, the book on carving it up, and now he's got yeah, yeah. diabetes. Now, um, so he's he, carving down. He's gone primal in recent years. It's probably one of the greatest emails that Mark's ever received in his inbox, where it says, "Hi, Mark. This is Dr. Timothy Noakes from Cape Town, South Africa." And of course, the guy's a legend, and Mark has known his, and known his work in and out, and dog-eared every single page of his 944-page masterpiece called Lore of Running, which has all the physiology and the training. And it was written in the 80s, and it still stands as the greatest you know book ever written on the subject. But now he's refuting a lot of his life's work that was in a carb paradigm. So if you're studying science in a, inside a paradigm, if you look at paradigm, you don't know the definition. It's like we're stuck in a bubble here, and we're trying to figure out what's the best way to uh, you know maintain our glucose balance and continue to perform. And it was a huge challenge, and it involved getting in better and better and better shape and working hard for hours and hours, refueling after workouts so you don't empty your muscles of energy. Um, and no one thought, or people did think, I mean, Finney and Volek, uh, 30 years ago, started publishing research about being fat adapted and doing endurance, and everyone ignored them or criticized them, and now they're, you know, finally coming to prominence. Luckily, they're still alive, unlike Picasso and Van Gogh, but now we're seeing, wow, if you tap into fat stores and diminish your need for glucose, uh, during exercise, you can enjoy all these amazing performance breakthroughs. So, Well, let's talk about Tim Noakes. I mean, Mark does a great podcast with him where they talk about this subject exactly where, you know, he admits writing this book and having it be all carb-based and then actually being a victim of that himself, right? He got type 2 diabetes. He can now, I think he said on the podcast, he eats about 20 carbs a day or something, mm -hmm. um, really, really low. 20 grams, And yeah. this is what we're seeing about with a lot of athletes, which is why your book is so important, because people need to just change this paradigm. Um, but let's look at that old, that old lore, whether it's coming from Tim Noakes or just was in the ether. What kind of level of carbs per day are we looking at, or, or per race? Like in a triathlon, yeah. how often are you depleting and carving? And depleting? Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Because yeah. I know there's these gel packs, you know, and there's all this kind of junk yeah. people use. So what what did that look like? Oh yeah, that was your original question. Yeah. Okay, let's ask it again. Maybe I'll try <laughs> to answer this time. Uh, so the science that uh, has been respected on that topic, um, like the Hammer Nutrition guys published um, a lot of this, and it seems as though you can only process like around 250 calories an hour of ingested carbs. And some people will eat more. And when I raced long distance, I would try to slam down more than that and hope I didn't, you know, have my stomach explode from uh, bloating and from difficulty processing that much sugar. Especially when you're exercising, your digestive system is not working well when your legs, your blood is in your legs, pumping the bike and climbing yeah, hills it's and on other things. pounding yeah. when you're running. So it's tough to get in uh, nutrition. It's best to get it in a liquid form or a gel form, so it's minimal, you know, chewing a banana or a peanut butter and jelly sandwich doesn't jibe well with running a marathon and pounding um, your, your digestive tract on the cement every step. Um, but, you know, people were shooting for getting around 250 calories an hour. Um, and what's shooting like, like drinking sugar water, right? Yeah, like a, a bottle of Gatorade, like a 16-ounce mm -hmm. uh, bottle could have 100 calories in there. And then a gel would have 100 calories in a gel. So people will set their watches and they'll drink, eat a gel every 15 minutes or do whatever they're... But calories you know, and then there's carbs? It's all, it's all carbs. Right. So yeah, you're, saying, you're not eating fat or protein because right, no one's... Right, how many carbs you know, are we talking about in those kind of things? Like how many carbs are you ingesting? Because you could say 250 calories per hour, but then like, well then how much is that in carbs? I can eat something... Uh, so it's 60 grams of carbs, right? Four calories per gram. So if you're eating 60 grams of carbs per hour, that's 240 calories... And that's believed to be the maximum that you can actually assimilate through your 
through your gut into your bloodstream. Um, and that's sort of your performance limiter because if you go too fast, like people that train all year for the Ironman and then they ride a great bike ride and then they get off the bike and they walk the marathon because they're blown out and they're depleted and you're not going to get it back during a race. You have to sit down and eat a meal and sleep for seven hours and let the let the body work its magic with refueling and restocking the muscles with glycogen. So the challenge during the race is, or during a workout, whatever, is to preserve glycogen, preserve glucose, because you're so good at burning fat. And we've known this for for a hundred years. I mean, we've known how physiology works during exercise, and the faster Why guys... Why did they miss it? Why did we well, miss Well, everyone knew this. The faster guys were better at burning fat and not burning up glucose, and if you're a recreational person... That's the reason why you can only last with the leader of the LA Marathon for one mile to get on camera, and then you dropped off the side of the road because you've burned up glucose all the way, and you're anaerobic, and you're building up lactic acid, and this person's talking through his mouth and able to carry on a conversation and is so good at burning fat that that glucose is being preserved over the course of the entire race. But what we forgot or didn't put into the equation was the dietary aspect and the dietary contribution of making you fat-adapted. So now, listeners, if you have endurance goals, you can rest assured that when you sit at home and eat a primal-aligned meal, you are contributing to your development as a fat-burning athlete and a better athlete. And when you eat sugar, especially after workouts, and there's a great story about um, speed golf champion Rob Hogan in Primal Endurance, where he accelerated his ability to be fat-adapted by rejecting the traditional sugar replenishment after an extremely difficult workout. And Dr. Kate Shanahan offers commentary on, on one of the podcasts uh, on the channel about this ability to rewire your appetite hormones through uh, strenuous exercise. So you get yourself in that depleted state and then you refuel with fat rather than sugar. You train and you your become, brain and your body. You become more fat adapted through diet and not spiking that blood sugar up constantly and not constantly replenishing and refueling. I mean, people now are obsessed with refueling and so the people do their spinning class, they go next door to Jamba Juice, and they get 136 grams. I mean, we have it calculated in the book. Like so A medium Jamba Juice and a little scony thing, or a little baked bread treat, whole grain snack, is like 900 calories and nearly 150 grams of carbs, which is our daily allotment through throughout evolutionary history. It's, it's way too much. And so... Well, it seems like it's also taking a lot of the stress out of these events. I mean, if you've got to constantly be considering putting something in your mouth and fueling while you're throughout this, it seems mm-hmm. like it's taking, you know, being fat adapted takes a lot of the work out of it too, just that extra stress of, oh my God, what am I going to eat and am I in time? Instead of like over-carbing it like we know runners and everyone did back in the day with the old paradigm, what would it look like now? Um, if I were going to do a triathlon and I was fat adapted, what am I, I mean, that's like a 15 hour race, right? Okay. So like, what am I, or maybe it's easier to talk about a a marathon. I don't know, but what does that look like for me throughout that race? What am I eating or ingesting as a fat adapted athlete? Like, you know? Yeah. Good, good one. I mean, that could be like a, a whole nother show. So maybe we'll, um, yeah, we'll talk about we could what end with that and make another show after, for, for that topic. All right, let's talk. Um, we can talk about food and training because I think that yeah. that's really fascinating. I mean, I've talked to a few people who have, uh, you know, become fat adapted and been amazed and they've just had like a little bit of coconut oil or, right. or a tiny little bit of honey water at some point way down the line, like after hour five. But it's, yeah. it's so minimal um, um, versus what they were slamming yeah, their yeah, bodies yeah. with before. Um, it's interesting. Here's the thing. Like um, there's guys featured in 
the book too. There's a whole chapter of success stories. One of them is Timothy Olson, who is the ultra runner of the year and two-time champion of the Western States 100-mile run. Um, and he le lives a paleo lifestyle and is nice um, adherence to the diet. However, on race day, he and many other athletes um, will take the sugar they need because they're racing at the front of the pack and they're competitive and they'll put anything they need into their body to sustain their performance. Zach Bitter is another one who's gone all day long running 630 miles for the National 100K Championship and he chronicled on his blog, ZachBitter.com, Z-A-C-H, bitter, like the sweet and sour and bitter, um, exactly what he put in his body. And it was all kinds of random, you know, a half a Mountain Dew, some jelly beans, some of this, some of that, um, some coconut oil, some fats. Um, but the point is on the race course, you do whatever you need to do to get to the finish line. If you feel like a, a little drop in blood sugar, which is definitely discernible when you're out there and sure. you start to feel a little goofy, um, slam some jelly beans, who cares? Because it's a performance and um, you're not trying to impress anybody at the finish line with like, I didn't have any carbs. And, but people are doing that too, by the way. They're doing entire so Ironmans. Even, even fat adapted athletes are sometimes then like just going crazy with the carbs or might go overboard like they would But they don't need that training. many. But right. they don't need that don't many, need which much. is amazing. Zach Bitter ate 136 calories an hour. So under that 250 we've talked about. And this is the top world level guy going at an insane pace all day long and on race day yeah. not like his on normal training day. routine right. this is just for race day to just punch yeah. it normal right? training timothy olson was on the podcast you can search his show and he's like yeah so i ran four hours and um i, I didn't eat much let's see i had a, a coconut oil uh, shot or whatever i mean they're so fit so fat they don't need much and so the average person maybe you're not at that extreme level where you're going to try to go four hours and not consume a bite of anything but you can, um, you know, transition in this direction by slowing down your pace, first of all, by eating in a primal aligned manner, second of all, so you're not uh, dependent on carbs, and then hitting out there with a handful of gels and um, whatever you need. Ted McDonald writes a great story in the book. Uh, he's a Malibu local and now fat adapted guy. Him. He's and great. he said, like, he did these ultra performance, I think it was like the hike to Machu Picchu, nine hours or something, and... He had the gels in his in his Ziploc in his pouch, and he knew they were there, and they're a lifesaver. When you're bonking and you take that gel, you come sure. back to life. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. And he had the psychological comfort of knowing that he had the sugar on his body and he could take it at any time. It didn't need but it. he realized he didn't need it. Yeah. And I think psychologically, that's a good that point. Too. We'll have to him. have a chat yeah. more about that later because that yeah. psychological aspect for someone making a total shift in paradigm from before, and then they might be nervous race day. Like, is this really going to work? Maybe right. even having that on yeah. them. Right. Take it. Take it along, take man. It along, if you need it, yeah. Need it. Yeah. So like it's that. it's a gradual process in terms of getting more and more fat adapted, but you can track it, such as in general terms, like like you're talking about. Wake up in the morning, see if you need breakfast, and if you do, like Brad Kearns when he first went primal. I need breakfast. I need a six egg omelet, please. I'll order it up right now. That's fine. Um, if you, somewhere down the line, six months later, you can go for two, three hours, or like in your case, 14 hours or whatever you did. <laughs> Not every day, hour. but it, yeah. it's been a but, lot, yeah. You know, track it and see when you need to eat, and that's an indicator of becoming better and better fat adapted. So if you can last till noon, that's great. If you can't, don't. That's fine. You, you know, eat when you're hungry. Yeah. That's part of the whole thing, right? Right, right, right. Don't so, eat because you think you have to. You yeah. Notice the change in voice tone of L there. It's like we got to hit these points strong because people will take this information and run with it, possibly in the wrong direction, where they're struggling and suffering and going primal so hard, and I did it for a while, and then I, then I, then I stopped, and I'm like, 
well, why? What was what was difficult and hard and struggling? Because we can we can address that with a snack of a handful of macadamia nuts, two celery sticks smothered in almond butter, a can of sardines, and um, a drink of primal fuel, and then let's talk about how hard it is to make it through the afternoon. It's like, come on, make it work for you in any way possible without yeah. that su suffer struggle mentality. Yeah, I love it. Um, all right, I guess we're a little bit out of time. Huh? We're going to have to do a hey, part two. Uh, let's, we're going to have to make show, four parts so, on this. <laughs> uh, that was L. Russ, the, the magnificent interviewer extraordinaire, oh, and I Brad enjoyed Kearns, being in your hot seat. Uh, this is Brad Kern signing off. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Thanks, and everyone. We, will, we have all kinds of sequels to this, especially I know you're hard at work on your book, Paying Your Thyroid Solution. And I want to talk is, to you about uh, that with primal endurance, though, too. There's an element that uh, athletes there, need to be aware of. There so. could be some thyroid sufferers out there, with, and you got the symptoms down. I know that. So we're going to hear all about that in coming podcasts. So thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye.